Good evening and welcome to Wednesday of week three of Rare Book School 1996. It's a pleasure to see you all here. Our speaker tonight is a recent graduate of the University of Virginia who is also the curator of this exhibition. It is the first of what I hope will be an ongoing succession of undergraduate exhibitions and I think you'll like to hear about this one. May I present Dan Miller. Hello. Well, just one look at the uh, weather outside and you'll understand that uh, there has never been a phrase in the English language as beautiful as a Wednesday. This is because Wednesdays are by far the absolute worst part of the week. Mondays have a bad reputation, but let's face it, there's a sort of freshness to the beginning of the week you can at least occasionally savor. I'm not letting Monday off the hook, it's still notoriously bad. But Wednesdays aren't even notorious, they're just bland. Of course, when Terry Bellinger asked me to speak on my experiences as a curator of this exhibition, I jumped at the opportunity without really taking note of the date, much in the same way that I jumped at the opportunity to curate the exhibition without really taking note of the deadline. So if at any time in the next hour the words I say become trite, confusing, or just plain silly, blame Wednesday. Otherwise, I would have to explain to you the terrifying feeling of being me. Just recently, a lowly undergraduate, speaking to a group that is by virtue of age, wisdom, or experience in rare book school, infinitely more knowledgeable about the world of rare books than I. In fact, although my calm appearance may deceive you, these are the same sorts of emotions I experienced while organizing the exhibition on the Armed Services Editions. Fear, exhilaration, and good old-fashioned last-minute panic. You see, believe it or not, curating an exhibition was the furthest thing from my mind when I began my last year here at UVA. I was primarily worried about the sort of things most fourth-year history majors are worried about. Graduate school, the real world, and finding enough change under the sofa to do laundry and pay off the cable bill at the same time. For those of you who are long removed from this lifestyle, think back to your college years. You're young and free, but you lack direction and confidence. You should have spare time on your hands, but you don't seem able to complete everything you want. At least not on time. And it sometimes feels like, because of your lowest status on the academic food chain, people don't always have a lot of time to deal with you. Of course, in time I would find this to be true. The point is, I was not an accomplished scholar who had mastered the art of discipline and then skillfully applied myself to organizing the exhibition. Rather, I was an enthusiastic but bumbling student who took on the job of curating and then learned some valuable lessons on the way. I was a first-time curator in the same sense that Joseph Hazelwood was a first-time oil tank driver. So in the interest of helping others in similar situations, it only made sense for me to prepare a guideline of biblical proportions. I have here in my hand a list of seven commandments for the first-time curator to follow. Yeah, I know, seven instead of ten. Uh, well, it's still a biblical number, and who knows, maybe Moses had seven to begin with and just converted them to the metric system. But for this <laughs> Wednesday night, our magical number is seven. And for those of you who are experienced at this sort of thing, feel free to nod your head, concur, and add your own commandments to the list. For those of you who aren't, Pay attention. First time curator commandment number one. Thou shalt know, love, and respect thine exhibition subject matter. For me, this wasn't difficult. 
I love history. I revel in it. I've never understood why even my closest friends pretend to be bored by the general subject of history, or why the media loves to talk endlessly about study after study, claiming how 99% of all high school seniors cannot correctly identify their national capital or their home planet. To me, there's something romantic about digging through the dusty books and stacks and shooting holes in long-established interpretations of historical events. Sherry asked me to curate this exhibition in part because he knew of my fascination with 20th century American history. But on the other hand, I cannot imagine, nor would want to imagine, doing an exhibition on, say, the effects of polysorbic acid on the strength of the human liver. Of course, someone in here is probably thinking, yeah, polysorbic acid in livers, that'd make a great exhibition. Which just goes to show you that just because I think my exhibition topic is interesting doesn't mean everyone else will. So I have to make sure it is interesting to them. And I hope that the exhibition in this room does just that. But you first got to know your subject cold. And enthusiasm will get you out of the messes caused by inevitable human error and uh, unpredictable acts of God. Once again, for me, this wasn't difficult because I first ran into the armed services editions in a history class. Of course, it wasn't a normal class. For one thing, it was taught by Terry Ballinger. For another, it was in the basement of Alderman Library. This leads me to first time creator commandment number two. Thou shall find thy necessary resources. Most of you are probably very familiar with the Book Arts Press, but you may not realize just how unusual the format of this class was. Now, the history classes here at UVA are incredible. They have opened up my mind to new worlds of thinking, and I've loved every one. But this is a large university, and by necessity, most classes range anywhere between 60 and 500 students. The class in Alderman, 12. And even then, Terry made remarks about how large the class had grown. But combine that small number of students with materials that the Book Arts Press can, can provide, and then place it in the context of the library and research facilities here at UVA. Then you've got one hell of an impressive course. One that would be nearly impossible to implement at any school lacking just one of these ingredients. Now, this year it was called the Impact of Printing, 1640 to 1900, which in my mind just does not do justice to the title. I think it deserves a more Spielbergish title, like, I don't know, Insights into Western Civilization, because this is in reality what my fellow 11 students and I walked away with. The unique format of the class brought us into close physical array with an impressive ar of array of books from every modern epoch of history. We were able to hold, feel, and even smell the original ASCs. Now, I could get into typography and book illustration and how Gutenberg's Bible changed society forever, but I think one concrete example would suffice. You're sitting down in the Book Arts Press, and for anyone uh, in here who hasn't been down there, it bears no resemblance to the rest of Alderman Library. It's like something you'd find in an Indiana Jones movie or maybe The Name of the Rose, with the torches being replaced by halogen lamps. I suspect Aristotle's lost book of comedies is probably stashed down there somewhere, maybe being used as a paperweight. <laughs> anyway, you're sitting in this room with your 11 colleagues, and the professor is talking about how the emotive value of, of that people place on books, you know, the, the sentimental attachment you you place on your torn-up astronomy textbook that you actually haven't picked up since sixth grade. And we're writing all this down, and then Terry picks up a very badly damaged book. And it looks priceless because it, it, it just looks so old. And who knows, maybe it is Aristotle's comedies, and he just doesn't realize it. And then suddenly, he rips it in half. 
dead silence. And then he says, you were disturbed by that, weren't you? <laughs> now you would have never have gotten that same effect of a class of 100 people in Cabell Hall. The point is, the available resources and research facilities are the lifeblood to that kind of class, as they are the lifeblood to an exhibition. This isn't a problem here in Charlottesville, but make sure that wherever you are, you've got the access to the materials that you need. As it turns out, the Book Arts Press had a pretty good collection of these things. Armed Services Editions, otherwise known as ASEs. We first ran into them uh, in, in the printing class. In short, they were part of the biggest book giveaway in history. During World War II, American publishers, authors, and printers banded together and created the Council on Books in Wartime. Through an amazing process, they were able to send these little oblong paperbacks to American GIs overseas in an effort to ease soldier boredom during inactive periods and boost morale. But ASEs are an endangered species. There are once 100 million of them. But now, because of their fragile format, publisher neglect, DDT, and the destruction of the ozone layer, very few exist today. Now, it's not bad that these didn't exist. They were meant to have a short lifetime. They served their job and their country well, and now most of them are gone, which makes the exhibition that much more fun and interesting. And it's not all that difficult to find a few badly bruised copies in your local bookstore. But there were originally 1,322 titles. Remember that, 1,322 titles. This will come back and haunt us. And virtually no one outside the Library of Congress has managed to find or compile a complete set. Terry knew that the Book Arts Press had acquired about 300, good enough to warrant an exhibition. And with the 50th anniversary of the end of World War II just passing by, the timing was right. All he needed was a curator. This were a movie, right now you would hear the theme song from Jaws playing in the background. <laughs> dun-dun-t, dun-dun-t, dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-d
He came by, and in my caffeine buzz, I began venting my thoughts, my hopes, my fears, all in in an hour about the world of history and academia and just basically life. Somehow, during the conversation, he said he was impressed by my paper, thought my writing skills were up to par, and mentioned a possible AXC exhibition, offering me the chance to curate it. Yeah, sure, I said immediately. Wow. Neat. No, I did not know what I was in for. I was truly thrilled and still am. But looking back on it, there were a few things I might have done differently. For example, first time curator commandment number three, thou shalt not treat thine exhibition like a term paper. Unfortunately, UVA has been wonderful in teaching me how to write. By my last year, term papers came easy to me. But an exhibition is not a paper. An historical exhibition brings a subject matter out into the public spotlight, entertaining as well as informing. Few people outside academia would be seriously interested in reading 30 pages of pure text on the Armed Services editions. Ken Burns didn't become a household name by shoving pages of Civil War and baseball history down people's throats. It gave people something to look at and listen to. I did not quite understand this concept. So I went about it like I would any history assignment. I researched my butt off. I read and reread and analyzed this one great book called Books in Action, a series of essays on the ASCs, and based in part on an exhibition John Cole had organized at the Library of Congress in 1983. I looked up references, listed in footnotes, I searched Virgo, and a few weeks later I triumphantly presented a list of various resources to Terry. I remember him then puzzling over the list and saying, Remember, Dan, this is an exhibition, not a paper. But at the time, it came across my mind as, remember, Dan, there'll be some pictures in the exhibition, too. But in December, we had more pressing concerns. We wanted the exhibition to get some attention. So for the moment, we're going to leave this commandment, but uh, don't worry, we'll, we'll hit it again and again. And move on to first-time curator commandment number four. Thou shalt make thine exhibition relevant. This can be the hardest, but also the funnest part of the exhibition. Nothing grabs attention more than tying in a subject matter to a current theme or popular figure of the day. The effects of polysorbic acid on human liver exhibition would be much more interesting if you discovered that Coca-Cola is basically made of polysorbic acid, or if it was Paul Newman's liver that had been affected. We had one leg up. The idea for the ASE exhibition had been born from its association with the passing of the 50th anniversary of the war. But this meant I had to establish the ASE's significance or possible insignificance in the war. At first, this seemed troublesome. I mean, look at these things. I mean, yeah, they're colorful, and those wild colors in the 1940s, blue, yellow, really stand out well in this white room. But what would it take me to convince you that this little oblong paperback could have easily have been your most cherished possession during the biggest war the planet has ever faced? Well, this is kind of like asking... Well, if there's no air in space, how could there be sound effects in Star Wars? And in the Brady Bunch, how could there only be one bathroom for a household of nine people? (laughs) And during those long stretches of time that you weren't engaged in battle or fighting John Wayne in World War II, what did you do with yourself? Or as I repeatedly mentioned in PR releases, imagine this. You're huddled in a muddy foxhole waiting for your lieutenant's order to leap out onto the battlefield. Or imagine how you might spend an evening aboard a troop ship knowing that you will invade the beaches of Normandy in the morning. Or simply imagine yourself in a foreign country, thousands of miles from home, with few diversions and little recreational opportunity afforded to you. What could you do to take your mind off the unpleasantness of war? 
Where would he find comfort? How about in a book? The fact is, no matter how good our surroundings become, we human beings need escape. And the more stressful our environment becomes, the more escape we seek. There's a reason why Hollywood's golden age occurred during the Great Depression. And it's the same, re- same reason why soldiers like James Michener and Frederick Pohl have such fond memories of the ASCs. When the U.S. entered the war, military officials knew they needed some way to keep the soldiers' minds off the war during those long stretches of time, lest they go stir-crazy. But the sorts of things that armed services personnel had done in their leisure back home, movies, dating, were simply lacking in enemy territory abroad. But books, reading, was of enormous psychological benefit. It was cheap, didn't require physical exertion, sharpened concentration, could be started and stopped without difficulty, and boosted morale. So, knowing that, in many cases, the ASCs were the only reading material available to overseas, and in some cases, simply the only form of entertainment available. It isn't hard to imagine how much emotive value a GI might have placed on an ASC. And it occurred to us that, hey, some of these people from 50 years ago are still alive and surely remember these books. And some of those still alive may even be household names. Writers, actors, politicians. In fact, 1996 was an election year. Surely, we thought, every politician up for re-election who had fought in the war would want to be seen contributing to this exhibition, celebrating the last feel-good American war. And the fact that the exhibition was going to be in the rotunda, I mean, one of the most visible and Let's face it, media recognizable symbol of wholesome American values was sure to get their attention. So with the Christmas break approaching, I started to compile a list. A list of every World War II veteran I could think of that the public would instantly recognize. I looked up the military records of every member of Congress, every Supreme Court justice, every member of the Virginia State Senate. I went through who's who, the Bible and celebrities in America. I logged online to find every actor, journalist, and TV personality that could come to mind. Art Bookwald, my favorite writer from the Post. Of course he was going to write us. John Glenn, the astronaut-turned-democratic senator, would write us too. And Gerald Ford, I mean, what was he doing in his spare time besides playing golf? Bob Dole, I wasn't going to vote for him, but surely he would want to associate himself with the war effort. (laughs) Paul Newman, his liver is okay, and he's too nice of a guy not to write us. Maybe they even want to come visit and promote the exhibition. I mean, who could ignore a young, idealistic puppy dog undergraduate? By the end of February, I had solicited the likes of over 100 celebrities, knowing that even 10 positive responses would earn us enough PR to make the exhibition world famous. First time creator commandment number five. Thou shalt expect the unexpected, and for God's sake, thou shalt not rely on the expected. In hindsight, maybe I was a little too hopeful. No, as you might have guessed, Paul Newman did not write us. Neither did Art Bookwald. Gerald Ford did, and his illuminating letter reads as follows. There's no dear Dan, just... I am very grateful that you, and many others like you, take the time to write in regard to certain requests, issues, or with your comments. (laughs) Unfortunately, the nature of my schedule, other obligations... And the size of my staff preclude the time necessary to provide the thoughtful and substantive reply or response requires. I hope the future provides me the time to individually answer more correspondence. Sincerely, Gerald Ford. 
Well, I realized then that prominent Americans do not always have the time to deal with requests from lowly undergraduates. Many simply never answer mail from insignificant persons, and others send vaguely worded letters that do not make it clear whether or not they are actually familiar with the subject at hand. I do have to admit, I, I was bummed out. I mean, by the end of February, it was obvious that, despite our hopes that we would receive some great cameo appearances within the next week, in all probability, we weren't going to receive the number or kinds of responses we had hoped. And let me add, February is another stretch of time that should just be abolished. I happen to be a very weather-dependent person, meaning I need to receive a modest amount of daily sunlight or I get into a big, deep blue funk. Unfortunately, the lifestyle of anyone working down in the book arts press <laughs> makes this condition disastrous. In fact, I propose for the halogens to be replaced by sun lamps and for all book arts press employees to be required to spend the entire lunch hour on the lawn. But this still wouldn't change anything in February. It's because February is cold, snowy, and sunless. It is the Wednesdays of the year. The only good thing I can say about February is it's short. And it was during this time that I realized the exhibition was not going to be filled to the brim with celebrity memoirs. In my mind, the exhibition was losing momentum. Terry pointed out that this was nonetheless an interesting twist. I mean, why, in fact, were people not responding? Or remembering? I had simply concluded that I had failed in properly soliciting the help of persons far more important than me. If I had continued down this path of reasoning, the exhibition might have been dead in the water. But in time, I did see it as a new theme to follow. I realized that the story of why it was so hard to find veterans who remembered these books was perhaps the most important part of the exhibition. This leads us to first-time curator commandment number six. Thou shalt explain whatever makes thine exhibition interesting or significant. It turns out that books are much more complicated and difficult than they appear. Getting them over to the armed services editions overseas turned out to be a formidable task. In fact, the history of the armed services editions is filled with mediocre attempts to do just that. The Victory Book Campaigns, for example, they were the first concentrated attempt of World War II to provide the soldiers with reading material. But it failed. For one thing, selections of the books simply stank. They drew a supply of books donated mainly from citizens who felt they were participating in the war effort. But few of the books were usable. Many of them were things like old Boy Scout manuals, and recipe books, documents on the effects of polysorbic acid on the human liver. And the ones that were usable were simply, were usually hardbacks and were too big and bulky to be carrying around in a war zone. And publishing companies at that point were simply not willing to produce paper-bound books of popular titles that sold as, as well as Grisham does today. And soldiers were too mobile to be able to take advantage of the selection in overseas libraries. The ASE project was designed to counter all of these problems. It began to dawn on everyone concerned that paper-bound editions, not hardbacks, was what was needed. They needed not only a new system of distributing re reading material, but also a new type of book one that was cheap enough for the services to buy, small enough for a GI to carry, and interesting enough to appeal to a broad audience. The key to this was not focusing on the design of the book alone, but rather finding out what equipment was available, which resources could be used, and then tailoring the book design to match. And in effect, those responsible for coming up with the winning, although unusual, format of the ASCs had followed first-time curator commandment number one, thou shalt seek and find thy necessary resources. It was Ray L. Troutman of the U.S. War Department who discovered that the rotary presses used to print monthly pulp and digest magazines, like Reader's Digest, for example, were available between issues for extended periods of time. 
and in fact could print paperbacks very, very, very cheap. But even a book the size of Reader's Digest is a little bit too big to be carrying around in your pocket. So they did the next logical thing. They split the size in half. So in place of every Digest magazine that was going to be printed, two, ASA, two ASAs were printed, one on top of the other. That's why these suckers look so weird. Okay. They aren't exactly your normal book. But they were inexpensive to make and easy to carry, and even the dual-column format made them easy to read. But come on, from the soldier's point of view, a book's contents were much more important than its format. Reprinting popular titles in the paperbound editions, however, required uniting the entire American book industry. So the Council on the Books in Wartime, created in 1943, did just that. It drew up a set of guidelines that publishers, authors, booksellers, and librarians could agree upon. The Council determined that royalties of one cent be split between publisher and author for each book published. Not a bad sum for press runs exceeding sometimes 100,000 copies. And the council promised to make sure that the ASCs were never allowed to enter the domestic market, one reason why it's so hard to find them today. Now this resulted in the most stunning and diverse selection of titles, authors, and topics you or I may ever see in a modern book day collection. Ernest Hemingway, Jack London, Walter Lippmann, the drawings of Bill Malden, the history of Europe, the biography of Ben Franklin, science, humor, fantasy, 1,322 titles. They were completely different, and they offered everyone something to read. This in itself makes the ASC a collection very significant, and it was something for me to follow while I waited on famous veterans or ex-presidents to get back to me. But even with the 300 or so ASCs that the Book Arts Press collection owned, it was going to be a tough job to display such a wide selection. It meant that, in all probability, we would need to borrow some materials from other institutions. Now, John Cole had mentioned in his 1983 book that the most complete collection of ASCs, besides the Library of Congress, resided at Princeton's Harvey Mudd Library, which contained about 600. I did not know nor realize how difficult or potentially expensive it would be to request these materials. And I didn't quite think about the time required, which leads us to first-time creator commandment number six, thou shall respect thy deadlines. Deadlines are ugly, nasty, immovable objects. They often result in sloppy work, bad grades, surly professors, and an entire federal government shutting down in January. And I, for one, have never been accused of being too organized. But an exhibition's deadline is in the real world. And on April 20th, there was going to be an exhibition set up in the dome room for the duration of the summer, with some 60,000 people eventually coming by to see it, whether I liked it or not. Fortunately for me, I remember to follow first-time creator commandment number one, thou shalt seek and find thy necessary resources. Okay, actually I'm lying. Blind, dumb luck saved my butt. One day I happened to ask Gail Cooper, she's a librarian here at Alderman Library, how to find ASC-related material in UVA's special collections department. She left me an email that simply read, Dan, Type in S equals Armed Services Editions on the Virgo system. <laughs> and this will also yield you a listing of um, 1,310 titles that the special collection department owns. <laughs> 1,310 titles, or in other words, every single ASC ever published except for 12. 
Princeton, eat your heart out. <laughs> it turned out that UVA had acquired a near-complete, mint, astonishingly well-kept collection from Philip Van Dorn Stern, the managing director of the ASE project. And the 12 that were missing, they weren't even important ASEs, just a couple of random copies that accidentally got lost in the transfer. Now, I, I don't know if any of you are spiritual superstitious, but uh, think about this. I mean, the chances that I, I went to UVA, took Terry's course, did an exhibition and found out that the primary materials for the exhibition were located basically in one academic institution, which just so happened to be the one I was attending. These things only happen through small, coincidental chances and random acts, or as my statistics course taught me, divine interference. <laughs> Someone up there looked down on me and smiled, and I owe them big. At no cost at all, I was afforded the opportunity to splash the dome room with as many different ASEs as I wanted. Boy, did I. This isn't to say that I didn't spend the last week before the exhibition's opening tearing my hair out and pulling all-nighters, but I cannot imagine, or want to imagine, what the exhibition would have been like if I had, you know, a week before the exhibition opened, found out, hey, we just don't have enough ASCs. When curating, remember, an exhibition in large part is only as good as its contents. Seek and find thy necessary resources. Divine interference is rare. But in the case that supernatural forces cannot come to your aid, you may find that certain well-connected individuals are just as useful. This leads us to first-time creator commandment number seven. Thou shalt take advantage of all personal connections afforded to you. Good hard work does yield more results than good intentions alone. But let me tell you, networking is where it's at. Now, in theory, we live in a meritocracy, and I'm a very idealistic person. I believe that every individual should be afforded equal opportunity. I mean, you know, just by my good intentions, I should be allowed to find all the necessary resources I need. And in theory, prominent Americans should have the time to write me. But in reality, none of this would have happened had I not made some strong personal connections. People like Kenneth Rendell and Max Robbins, Robbins you might recognize as a weekly columnist and TV guide. They happened to deal with many of the prominent Americans I was trying to reach. And they made sure that a large portion of them were, in fact, aware of my situation. And it is no coincidence that after I solicited their help, on April 1st, the last day I allowed veterans to write me, we received the most illuminating and touching letter from anyone. James A. Mishner, who has written more books in his lifetime than there are references to God in the Old Testament, wrote us a letter explaining his overwhelming fondness for the ASEs, how Kenneth Rendell's Kenneth Roberts' historical works influenced his own, like Tales from the South Pacific, his Pulitzer Prize-winning collection of short stories that he wrote while he was on duty in the South Pacific. And I could read you this, but instead, you're going to see it on your own. I encourage, no, 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 I, I demand all of you to read this letter in case eight. And Mishner's letter helped us successfully follow commandment number four. Thou shalt make thy exhibition relevant. It made a good lead for a press release. And instead of using a photograph of the ASEs, Terry took a snapshot of me for the releases. I look a little disgruntled. This was, I think, taken on a Wednesday. And I think the caption should probably read, PO'd curator uh, fails to follow biblical commandment number, uh, let's see, three, thou shalt follow thy own deadlines. 
But some of the press was interested, including an article in the University Journal, the Fairfax Journal, the Richmond Times-Dispatch, and an interview with Seth Williamson on National Public Radio, NPR. Still haven't learned the value of personal connections? Well, after the exhibition, our good friend, Phil Royal, a veteran himself and former printer, printed a fantastic-looking cover to a catalog that we prepared for the exhibition. It's pretty neat, doesn't it? And it's been a great selling point. They've been selling briskly. Get your copy now. <laughs> and these little things, help from Rundell and Robbins and Royal, were just as vital to the exhibition as hard elbow grease and research. In fact, I fully realized this 10 days before the exhibition's opening. I had done a wonderful job of typing up pages and pages on the intricacies of the ASCs. Everyone would certainly enjoy reading my wisdom splashed out, probably three hours worth, in the dome room. Oops. Obviously, I had forgotten to remember that an exhibition is not a paper. But we had the materials. We had the personal connections. We had the available resources and extra help in our final hours. George Reiser, for example, from the Special Collections Department, spent most of those last few days running back and forth, back and forth, retrieving every last ASE I had forgotten to request. And, in fact, what saved me in those final hours was system. We developed one to get everything we needed to get done by the exhibition's opening date, April 20th. Well, not exactly. We actually spent most of that last afternoon physically setting up the exhibition in the middle of someone else's speech, kind of like this one. Let me tell you, this is a rather quiet room. You can probably hear a pin drop if you listen. So you can imagine the speaker's displeasure when we occasionally dropped a shelf. <laughs> but by Saturday night, it was up and ready. And you know what? It does look good. But it made me realize that as powerful as these seven commandments are, they are usually useless unless you organize some system to implement them. And ironically, the ASCs actually teach us something about this. Now, with today's headlines, it's hard to imagine something like the ASC project occurring without some horrible scandal or internal corruption or planning competence ruining it. And, well, big systems, like the ASCs, aren't so popular anymore. I know this. I grew up in Northern Virginia in the D.C. metropolitan area, which is infamously known to everyone as the Beltway. Folks up there have been a little more gloomy in recent years because the federal government has been taking some hard knocks recently. Huge, sprawling bureaucracies are no longer in these days. But let me tell you, systems, whether they are federal governments or ASC projects or last-minute plans to get your exhibition set up on time, can save your butt. After all, big government defeated slavery, brought us out of a Great Depression, won two world wars, and somehow successfully united every major American publisher, printer, and author, many of whom I can only guess are rather stubborn people. On the other hand, flawed systems do create inefficiency, corruption, and get made, of, made fun of in the X-Files or Oliver Stone movies. But the ASCs, I thought, this would remind us of a time when huge projects worked. Or did they? Were the ASCs successful? This became the final angle of the exhibition. And the answer is a little vague. After all, after all, it turns out Mishner was not alone. Science fiction writer Frederick Pohl was strongly influenced by Hugh Gray and Lillian Lieber's The Education of T.C. Mitz, 
TC MITS being an acronym for the common man in the streets. Likewise, Congressman John D. Dingell pointed out that the ASCs were a welcome diversion to the amount of hard work and boredom many servicemen faced. But most of the veterans who did respond simply did not run into these little things. Ben Bradley, for example, editor of the Washington Post, was much more into the magazines of the war. Virginia State Senator Madison Murray said it was simply a long time ago and couldn't remember. Grumpy old man Jack Lemon missed the ASCs because, well, he spent the war uh, in Harvard. Now, these cases did answer some of our questions. The war was a long time ago, and if veterans were not stationed overseas, of course they wouldn't have read the ASCs. But CBS newsman Andrew Rooney was overseas, and he never ran into them. So obviously, the ASCs did suffer from some of the same distribution problems that the Victory Book campaigns had faced. Finally, the most disturbing letter of all came from the office of Jimmy Stewart. He told us he was simply too ill to respond. Now think about this. Someone who was 20 years old at the end of the war would now be in their 70s. I realized that a lot of the veterans who might have remembered the AFCs have died. And this made me realize just how an important exhibition like this was. You see, I'm probably the youngest person in here. I was born in Pearl Harbor Day, 32 years after Pearl Harbor. Or in other words, during the Watergate fiasco. I wasn't even alive for the Vietnam War. My most personal connection to World War II comes from my, my namesake and my great uncle Dan. His stories about the bulge and traveling the roads of Berlin were probably my most personal connection to the war. Everything else I learned came from my classes, or my professors, or my history books. Pretty soon, memories like my great uncles or like missionaries will only be accessible through exhibitions like this. Most of my fellow students here experience history only through a textbook. This exhibition is, in a sense, one last chance to give people a first-hand account of the most significant struggle the world this century has ever faced. In a decade from now, this exhibition would, be necess would necessarily be completely and utterly different. Living history is disappearing right before us, but armed with the seven mighty biblical commandments, the first-time curator can salvage it. Thou shalt know, love, and respect thy subject matter. Thou shalt find thy necessary resources. Thou shalt not treat thine exhibition like a term paper. Thou shalt expect the unexpected, and for God's sake, thou shalt not rely on the expected. Thou shalt explain whatever makes thine exhibition interesting or significant. Thou shalt respect thine deadlines. Thou shalt take advantage of every personal connection afforded to you. And I believe that in saving history, even I, the bumbling Moses of first-time curators, was able to capture a little of it before it left. Which goes to show you that with a little luck, the days of the week don't have to apply. In fact, come to think of it, maybe Wednesdays aren't so bad after all. Thank you. Have a nice Wednesday.